Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the podcast. Today, I'll be talking to Martin Paul Eve and Jonathan Gray about their edited volume, Reassembling Scholarly Communications, Histories, Infrastructures, and Global Politics of Open Access, published Open Access by MIT in 2020. Get your copy now. Open access is not simple. It's not simple in the sense of open good, not open bad. For example, open access has brought more harm than benefit to the scholarship of Africa and to other places in the global south. Open access is also not simple as in simple and straightforward. It's hard to understand just what open means and what more open and less open can look like or have looked like. For example, The Royal Society, not the place most of us would first think of when hearing open access, the Royal Society handled the publication's philosophical transactions and also the proceedings for a good 300 years far more openly before switching to the commercial model, which only today the society is beginning to reconsider. Values, both ethical and financial, change over time. One point among many that the book Reassembling Scholarly Communications succeeds in making And the second point is this. With time, values will change again. That's why we must trace history to understand the present and understand the present to shape the future. Open is also not simple because technology is not simple. If you had thought, like me before reading the book, that an infrastructure was composed of wiring and circuitry, well, then think again. Because as Jonathan Gray in his contribution so lucidly demonstrates, it's not about how infrastructures bring research to the public, but about how socio-technical arrangements make things public and assemble different publics. And there we are at a key word in this multi-perspective and multi-purpose study, assemble. What are we assembling when we communicate research? And across which assemblages Are we communicating that research and who or what at the far end of the message sending process is reassembling that research for whom, to what end, when, and where? The biologist at the lab bench and the physicist outside the particle collider and the historian underground in the stuffy smelling archive, all of them and all of us need to be asking these questions. The collection Reassembling Scholarly Communications is the practice it would preach if preaching was what this collection practiced, but it doesn't. Not in the sense of obey the dogma, follow the commandments. In every chapter, at every turn, in every question raised and at nearly every word, the reader of Reassembling Scholarly Communications, he is the contributors exploring possibilities, wandering new possibilities into existence, revising old possibilities for new realities. For example, to name just one, when viewed from the outside, a call for scholars to shun for-profit platforms can seem good activism as well as effective intervention. But the chapter, The Platformization of Open by Phoenix Andrews, 
looks at the inside of the issue. For one, just to insist that a platform is not open enough does not make more data open. But more to the point, to demand that scholars optimize their practices can be to ignore the precarious and fractional working conditions of so very many academics, especially those early career academics whose very chances of future research might be pinned to self-branding and big visible social networking services. Common to every chapter in reassembling scholarly communications is the message of action. The agent and their agency matter to all 39 contributors to this big, broad, and bold undertaking. I can only imagine the coordinative energies this collection drew from both Martin and Jonathan. Bruno Latour and colleagues on the project Inquiry into Modes of Existence, Emily Drabinsky and colleagues on the social justice concerns of open access, Istvan Rev on the archivists of this world as the data controllers of this world, John Walensky on the statute of Anne 1710 and the origins of modern copyright law, Kathleen Fitzpatrick on open and sustainable research communities, to cite just a few of the influential authors, scholars, and activists collaborating on reassembling scholarly communications. This is scholarly communication viewed and reviewed assembled and reassembled from very, very many angles. And the result is as many insights into the problems of open, into the solutions for open, and into the reasons why open and also why not open. This podcast on the New Books Network, Scholarly Communication, is the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Wherever writing and knowledge connect, there the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there too we at Scholarly Communication have our place. So let's begin today's episode. Martin Paul Eve, Jonathan Gray, Reassembling Scholarly Communications. Martin, Jonathan, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you, Daniel. Very good. Um, I'm quite interested, as in um, all of my uh, podcasts, in finding out about the authors, or in your case, the editors of uh, the books that I talk about. So it would be wonderful to be able to hear First off, what in your backgrounds led you to edit this collection? What made this uh, topic interesting for you? And perhaps add on to that, uh, where did you find all these contributors? Okay, so I'll kick up off on this. Um, so ever since I did my PhD at the University of Sussex, I've had a deep frustration with uh, our systems of scholarly communication and academic publishing. Um, During my PhD, I I became radicalized to some extent by uh, the librarians with whom I fell in, who uh, pointed me to some of the iniquities of the system, and in particular to the mega profits of the very large academic publishers. Um, It struck me forcibly at that time that there was no guarantee that I would have an academic job when I left my PhD, and that I would then be at the mercy of having to purchase back uh, research that was published by former colleagues, academics um, from around the world. And it just seemed to me that this was not a good way forward. And ever since that point, I've worked on various scholarly communications initiatives. So I'm a founder and director of the Open Library of Humanities, which is a a born open access publisher of 28 academic journals using a novel economic model that we call the Library Partnership Subsidy. Um, And we've just had our 300th member for that, actually. Stanford University uh, are now financially supporting us. I've also written quite a lot of theoretically about open access, though, 
Um, I wrote a book about open access in the humanities disciplines for Cambridge University Press. Um, probably a third of my academic publications are about scholarly communications. The other two thirds are literary studies. So I'm a literary studies academic um, by actual background. But, but I guess this book came about because I realized the plurality of views that exist about aspects of open access, about its implementation, about its messy histories, uh, about its geo-specificities, uh, about uh, different types of artifact and openness, about the politics of openness, um, and about the, the ways that these are often synthesized into a simplistic narrative that actually I think is defied by what people are saying on the ground. And um, what's really interesting to me is that most academics think they know about scholarly publishing because they have all published. This is a bit like me saying that I'm an expert in how car engines work because I can drive. Um, it doesn't equate to the same thing. And so what we really wanted to do was to put together a volume that did not really attempt forcibly to synthesize all of the, the propositions made under its roof, but rather to give a space for a debate to develop, a space for uh, argument and conversation to flourish about these difficulties. Um, I'll hand it to Jonathan in a second, but I guess one of the other things I would to stress was that we, we'd aimed originally at having shorter chapters that, that were trying really to distill down people's views into absolute clarity so that those who are not well versed in this field could come to the subject and, and grab hold of, of some quite complex ideas in, in bite-sized nuggets. And we didn't quite always succeed in that because some contributors uh, were far more expansive than, than we'd, we'd planned. But I think for the most part, we actually did quite a good job of producing a slightly different format of shorter chapters with punchier messages. Uh, Jonathan, did you, want, did you want to come in on your background and, and what you brought to this? Yeah, great. Thank you so much, Daniel, for having us. Um, I guess my background, I mean, my PhD was in philosophy and um, you know, I was looking at uh, the relationship between reason, language and experience and uh, what shapes and conditions how we think and engage with the world around us. And I guess I was kind of responding to debates in the 18th century, which um, uh, focused on the pu purification of reason. And by contrast, I was looking at kind of critiques uh, of that sort of line in the 18th century, which were um, concerned with looking at the kind of conditions of reason um, and this is kind of a move that has been subsequently called detranscendentalization, or the kind of embodiment, re-embodiment and the materialization of how the way we think is organized in the world. Um, and while I was doing that PhD um, in philosophy, in parallel, I was also uh, director of policy and research at a non-profit organization called Op the Open Knowledge Foundation, where I was working on open access, open data and the digital public domain and doing a lot of um, advocacy, research, uh, community organising um, with various activist groups, with journalist groups and others, including uh, work on data journalism, data activism and public data practices, which actually turned out to be at the core of um, the book that I'm currently writing, which is on data worlds, also on uh, MIT Press. And this kind of period of my work was also informed by um, research in science and technology studies and new media studies, which I pursued through projects and associations with um, the Media Lab at Sciences Po in Paris, 
founded by Bruno Latour and the Digital Methods Initiative at the University of Amsterdam. And uh, together with these various collaborators, um, we formed a network called the Public Data Lab, which explores the role of digital data methods and infrastructures in the composition of collective life, in the uh, shaping and addressing of public problems, and which itself uh, is, in a way, a kind of scholarly communications experiment. So I guess um, for me, uh, what brought me to this project is what could perspectives in some of these different fields bring to the study of open access, to the doing of open access, um, including but not limited to um, work on the infrastructures of scholarly communication. Um, and one of the things that really motivated me around some of these early conversations with Martin around the book and, and with other colleagues was how one could bring some of these different kinds of perspectives to bear on the socio-technical organisation of scholarly communication. That is, what these perspectives could um, uh, could do to make a difference to the, to the doing of scholarly communication, not just kind of critiquing it, but also recomposing it, um, doing it differently. Um, and I guess, crucially, could they potentially lead to different ways of understanding and uh, reorganising scholarly communication systems, not just as neutral vehicles for getting research out, uh, you know, getting articles out, getting books out, but also um, not just as objects of study, but potentially both. Um, hence this notion of uh, reassembling, um, which ended up being in the title, uh, in the sense of both empirical, conceptual and historical respecification, but also in the sense of different kinds of interventions and engagements to reshape or to reorganise. So I remember meeting up with Martin in a pub uh, near King's Cross, and we talked about this book as a kind of, and I paraphrase, um, kind of transdisciplinary aperitif or kind of conversation starter to explore uh, how we might think about and do scholarly communications differently based on perspectives from uh, these sorts of fields in our home grounds of, you know, arts, humanities and social research. So to cut a long story short, the book ended up finding a home at MIT Press, which was ideal given not only its uh, publishing work in um, science and technology studies, the history and philosophy of science, and uh, new media studies, infrastructure studies, and so on, but also its own experiment around open access publication and different formats and approaches and so on. Um, so yeah, we're very pleased how um, things worked out from that initial conversation in the pub. All right. Yeah, uh, that does give a very uh, clear view of uh, where the project came from and where the editors themselves came from on it. I want to follow up a point or two about uh, the format, uh, which you also mentioned, Martin, and I uh, would like to also say to uh, future readers that it does succeed in being something different. And I would like to get into how that is, but I, I just can't ignore the fact that both of you brought up a very, very interesting point. And it is about this, that the digital and the publishing affects what it is that knowledge is, how we understand it, where we get it, that this such, this so central issue in the creation of knowledge, and let's just say sort of generically, the university um, doesn't get paid attention to, as you say, Martin, I mean, people think they get it, but there's a lot that's not talked about, which is vitally important. And another common theme that runs through my uh, podcast is the other point in universities that doesn't get noted, and that's the teaching and the learning. 
it's almost like they fall outside of just as much you know the the dissemination of knowledge these two central points in in the university also seem to fall outside of people's general view as to what's going on and they're in their subject matters I wonder if I, I've got here two people who will know or certainly have something to say on it. I wonder what both of you think about that um, misrecognition, if you like. So I guess um, an, another important point that came out of Jonathan's note there was uh, the the infrastructure underlying the creation of this book was being able to go to the pub, uh, which, of course, in our COVID era is no longer uh, an option open to us. Um, but but it is interesting how serendipity and chance can lead to, to work as much as uh, sitting down and planning things. And I did just want to note that as a kind of humorous aside, but also as something that is far harder in the purely digital world we find ourselves uh, now living thanks to COVID. I guess um, I, I use the word infrastructure there and you use that in your introduction, Daniel, and I think it's an important one because I mean, in Susan Laystar's famous um, article, The Ethnography of Infrastructure, one of the points she makes is that infrastructure only becomes visible on its breakdown. It is when infrastructure falls apart that we find ourselves confronted with the ways that things work. Um, to go back to that car analogy I used earlier, you only really work out how your car engine works when suddenly it won't start and you need to dive in and have a look. And I think we could say the same about much of scholarly communications practice, that for most academics, it runs underneath the hood without disruption uh, for and has done for probably 60 plus years now in a common form of, of subscription publishing. What seems to have happened, though, is that it's come into uh, a car crash with the possibilities of the digital space. And suddenly, what looked like it was working relatively well, uh, no longer perhaps has those same characteristics. If we believe that in the digital world, it's possible to disseminate things um, ad infinitum once you've got the first copy, uh, then our current system of scholarly communication no longer measure up to that goal. At the same time, there are specialized mechanics, we might call them, or engineers who have spent many decades thinking about this uh, and thinking about the ways in which our, our underlying infrastructures would need to be reshaped for this still, I think, coming digital revolution of scholarship. And so I, that's what I think is going on here, actually, is that each of these uh, chapters is a sort of fissive incursion into uh, what looked like a homogenous whole and coherent uh, infrastructural publishing ecology. Um, each of them provides a way of fracturing somehow what looked like it was working and gives us a puncture point. And sometimes it's unexpected. I mean, Isvan Rev's chapter on the, the politics of the archive in the open world is really about what it, what it is not possible to share for reasons of personal safety, for reasons of data protection law, um, and the limits of open access which is not really a view that goes down terribly well with uh, very die-hard proponents of, of openness who tend usually to be quite libertarian um, Silicon Valley types. So this gives you an idea of the complexities of some of the politics that are going on here where left and right get complicated with libertarian versus anarchistic uh, versus centralised when you've got the funders coming in and trying to think about where each of these sits in relation to the other politically was, was one of the most interesting challenges for me of synthesizing a volume 
But as I said, seems to me to be about multiple points of incursion. So, yeah, uh, I guess another important point following on from what Martin was saying about um, infrastructure studies and moments of breakdown is Susan Lee Starr and others work on how infrastructures can be understood not just as things, but in terms of relations. I think, um, you know, you can derive a lot of um, kind of empirical and analytical purchase on the current state of scholarly communication through this kind of relational approach to infrastructures. Um, I guess, you know, as Martin was saying, um, we have these moments of crisis and breakdown. I guess uh, one of the ones which has been very widely uh, discussed and recognised is the so-called serials crisis, where major university libraries are no longer able to afford the articles that their researchers uh, require access to in order to do their research. Um, and, you know, we see what one could consider the issuefication of open access, the material organisation of open access as an issue, um, including different sorts of advocacy strategies, such as how these moments of breakdown are collectively articulated uh, through infrastructural experiments, such as the open access button, which is something I discuss in my chapter. And I think this is an interesting case of how moments of breakdown may be taken as uh, what Norton Maris calls curatable occasions or moments which can be um, uh, publicised or lead to the kind of pub, uh, pub, public performance of the issue in sort of particular ways. But it's important that we don't only um, think of breakdown as somehow being absolute and we should think you know, for whom are things breaking down or not? Um, uh, when are things not working as intended? Um, and where? Uh, and the flip side of this, of course, is uh, for, for many people, uh, for much of the time, um, scholarly communication systems may not be experienced as broken down um, and they may not experience lack of access or epistemic alienation and so on. Um, and which is, of course, you know, also problematic in other ways. Um, so with the book, one of the things we wanted to do is step back and ask, what is it that we are doing together when we're doing scholarly communication? What are we talking about when we talk about uh, scholarly communication systems? You know, we spend so much time in social and cultural research, uh, critiquing, examining, reflecting, but sometimes less so on what is immediately in front of us. Uh, the particular ways in which our reflections and our critiques are socialised and materialised. Um, and I guess one of the things we wanted to ask is, are the kinds of socio-technical arrangements which are involved in what we do together when we're doing scholarly communication, we're doing research, are these arrangements fit for purpose? Um, is the configuration of collective inquiry uh, enabling the kinds of conversations we want, the kinds of communities we want, the kinds of knowledge practices we want, appropriate for our fields and are they also appropriate for broader societal issues and problems we face and situations we're in in the current moment and I guess there is a risk that we may overlook these particular formats and modes of organization um, which shape uh, our intellectual work and into which our energy is uh, poured collectively um, 
we may overlook the containerization of our thinking in particular ways, including not only the sustenance of discourse, but also its commodification as a spectacularly successful asset class for a handful of large publishing firms. And of course, there are also dangers that with the instrumentalization of research, whether for market startups, bureaucracies, or for others, um, we may kind of see uh, these very particular ways of organizing research as somehow being natural. Um, and surely what we need instead is a kind of ecology of different modes of organizing research, not just a kind of universal shoehorning into a particular uh, kind of um, research product. Um, so we know that the way in which discourse is materialized is not just a side concern, um, but fundamental to the organization of research in society. You know, we study this in social and cultural research, the production of cinematic subcultures or memes or 18th century political pamphlets. And one of the basic points in the book is we're all living in this same world, you know, and when we produce accounts of things, we're not somehow doing so in a somehow fundamentally different register, a fundamentally different way or somehow um, uh, in a way which is different to the production, production of poetry or, um, you know, free market propaganda or speculative fiction. Um, like all of these things, research is in the world and of the world. So I think this is something that in the book we hoped could be taken seriously, not just as a side concern or as an administrative afterthought, um, how our world occupy, how our, how our research occupies the world, um, the particular forms it takes, uh, how problems are given shape, um, who and what is involved in the discourse. And of course, um, questions of inclusion, exclusion, uh, the role of research in society, um, the patterning of different ways of knowing um, and these are brought into sharp relief in the first few chapters of the book on colonial legacies, um, how colonialism is not just something in the past, but something that operates in the present. And the different kinds of empirical, theoretical, historical and creative sensibilities that we have in uh, social and cultural research are like this kind of vast body of work, you know, this library that we can draw on, a kind of um, interdisciplinary arts of noticing, as Anna Singh puts it, or attending to these sorts of uh, specific details and contingencies. And what we hope to do in the book is to encourage more people to attend to the, mean, uh, the means through which research has life in the world. And as you say, um, Daniel, this also has huge import for teaching, uh, how we acculturate and acclimatise students, how we train their attention and support them in configuring relations between research, questions, texts, um, materials and methods, how we orient how we orient them and how they find themselves in the world. Um, and the particular modes of textual production involved in our work also have a huge effect on what we do when we're training our students. Um, when we're training our students, we're also contributing to producing people in particular ways um, through these sorts of scholarly communication systems as readers, as reading publics, um, as Robin um, Dumourat, uh, Donato Ricci and Bruno Latour talk about in their chapter on formats and publics, and also, as is mentioned in some of the other chapters on libraries and literacy. And of course, this is not only um, for those who go on to become researchers, but, you know, this, this shapes your whole orientation towards thinking, research and the production of different sorts of intellectual outputs. Um, and 
I guess, finally, um, another thing that I thought was important to mention is that we're not completely beholden to these forms and formats that we inherit. Um, and the book is also intended as an invitation to rethink and recompose scholarly communication. So in the last few years, we've been thinking about this a lot with work on collective inquiry, including engaged research-led teaching, um, combining research, teaching and external collaborations. And here we're really interested in different experimental ways of composing problems and issues um, through different out outputs and different ways of organising collaborative projects and collective learning beyond the conventions we're used to, whether in uh, from academia or from management or from NGO land or startups, um, to register different forms of expertise and to support different ways of knowing and understanding. And on that note, um, I love the chapter in the book from uh, Pamela Smith and colleagues at Columbia, which is this wonderful invitation to reconsider the relationships between uh, recipes, craft and scholarly communication and the unexpected affinities between cooking, uh, early modern how-to texts and uh, write-ups of practices that we may consider scientific. I think these kinds of refigurations and reconfigurations of collective learning uh, become more and more important when it comes to thinking about some of the major challenges that we face today, such as climate change, which will involve uh, a lot more than the kinds of studies that IPCC scientists produce or the COVID-19 pandemic indeed, which will take a lot more uh, than epidemiological or economic knowledge to recover from. Yeah, um, I see. That's uh, also quite uh, interesting uh, as it comes to the format that we're in right now of a collection, um, because you've both made a very clear point of this being, you know, a wide pluralistic view of open access and uh, trying to have as many different possibility uh, poss possible avenues into the topic. And uh, one of the things that certainly comes out in the volume is that, you know, there's contradictions across chapters at times and there's different, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's criticism that's not even being spoken, but you can, you can feel it between one chapter to the next one part of the uh, uh, book to the next. And I wonder if, you could speak, perhaps, uh, Martin, a bit more to this this format of the collection and also of managing such a large group of uh, contributors. Yeah, sure. Don't ever do it. That's my advice. Um, <laughs> this, I mean, this, this is a hugely rewarding project when it came off, but it was also an incredibly complex logistical assemblage. Um merely coordinating communication at production stage between this many authors was uh, a challenge, let alone working to deadlines, working on revisions to chapters, staggering that um, so that people aren't overwhelmed. Um, it really, you know, it, it was a, a mammoth undertaking. And actually, I'd also recommend um, Peter Webster's recent book um, in the Cambridge Elements series called The Edited Collection, that details, you know, the, the hazards of this mode of collective thinking. But I agree with you also that there are there are tensions between chapters. I mean, Kathleen Fitzpatrick seems to come into tension with Phoenix Andrews's chapter quite um, violently. Um, that, that seems clear to me. Um, I think also you know, we, have some, we have some synergies in there as well, though. It's, it's not everyone just uh, fighting each other. Um, I think also what is perhaps interesting is the publics and politics section has a series of different histories of open access. 
uh, and the ways that we we think through those. Um, you come to this mode where we've got Stuart Lawson giving us political histories of UK public libraries as one route through which we can think about open access. While on the other hand, uh, we've got Eileen Fife giving us that incredibly detailed history of the Royal Society and the non-commercial circulation of knowledge, uh, part of a, part of one of her ongoing large-scale studies of that organisation. I think also some of the chapters um, felt a little uneasy in some ways with how the, how they sat within the overall narrative, but they, they had resonance for us that we wanted to keep. So um, one of the hardest chapters to, to situate is, I think, Pamela H. Smith um, and others is uh, The Making of Empirical Knowledge, Recipes, Craft and Scholarly Communication. Uh, this deals with uh, an old school form of craft communication, thinking about um, the ways in which those in previous non-digital eras communicated in ways that might be considered as though they were open or that there were open elements of their practice in eras before we'd really usually talk about openness and digitality. Um, on the other hand, uh, Istvan Rev's chapter, which I've already mentioned, um, can feel a little bit as though it's it's in a different space. It's dealing with the archive of sensitive uh, crimes uh, of genocide being documented in these archives compared to, say, talking about digital humanities scholarship, which often perhaps doesn't have that same degree of import around uh, personal data disclosure. I think also, you know, I detect tensions from John Homewood, who's been very critical in many places about open licensing and the potential risks to the public university and its funding structures if that comes through. Uh, but I want to make sure that, that John had a voice in this book. If we're going to have a debate about this, we need people with differing views to be able to offer their, um, their differing perspectives within those contexts. And actually, he did manage to give quite an interesting new angle about uh, what it means to have public knowledge and what that means for democracy. When, when so many arguments have been based on a liberal humanist philosophical principle that if we just make knowledge available, things will be greatly improved. Uh, I think John gave us pause to thought, pause for thought over that, that precept um, in quite an interesting way. So yeah, I, I think there are a lot of tensions that run throughout the book, but I think they work productively um, against one another and are, are done in a, a spirit of intellectual inquiry that makes, makes the volume work. Now, one of the um, actually, it would be very good, I think, right now that uh, the listeners get a sort of overview, a run through of uh, the different parts of the book, so that the scale of the project is is clear to them. And um, maybe if you could also add on a point as to how or why the collection was organized in the fashion it was. I will give the brief structure: it is six. Parts And in each part, there's numerous chapters. The first part is colonial influences. Second part moves to epistemologies. Third to publics and politics. Fourth to archives and preservation. Fifth to infrastructures and platforms. And lastly, sixth to global communities. So again, the point that I think would be helpful for listeners is to just have a feel for what is covered in the uh, different six parts, what they would be expecting to find there when it comes to open access in these uh, different uh, subject areas? Yeah, uh, well, this is, I mean, we, we, we thought a lot 
about the structure of the book. Initially, we had three sections. In fact, we had uh, we tried to do one on pasts, uh, presents, and futures, um, but we ended up kind of reorganizing into these six. And I guess the first thing to say is that it felt important, uh, given those uh, first four chapters that we have in the book, to emphasize the kind of colonial inf- uh, influences, discussions around epistemic alienation. And I guess to start with a re-specification of what is at stake with open access and scholarly, scholarly communication to think beyond what we'd immediately uh, maybe think of in the context of uh, Europe and the US, uh, namely open access as a matter of licensing or um, APCs, uh, article processing charges and so on. And to think of uh, what else is going on here. And the four, first four chapters, I think, give a really good kind of entry point into thinking about um, the colonial histories of uh, open access and scholarly communications, including some of the uh, entanglements between uh, large publishing companies and their parent organisations and you know, various colonial uh, projects, including um, arms, uh, uh, arms sales and uh, also perspectives on scholarly communications from the from uh, the point of view of social justice uh, inclusivity and uh, other sorts of possible ways of organizing open access to scholarly communications which might be centered on uh, different countries and communities than those which uh, currently drive transnational uh, activity around open access and scholarly communication. So we really wanted to put that section uh, front and centre. Then uh, next we have one looking at epistemologies. And here we we really wanted to kind of go back and revisit some of these uh, genealogies of open access um, in terms of the law, in terms of uh, peer review, in terms of the formats which carry over into the digital. Um, and here, as Martin mentioned earlier, we have this uh, piece from Pamela Smith looking at the uh, relationship between empirical knowledge and recipes and craft, uh, just to give you a sense of the unexpected genealogies of um, contemporary knowledge uh, and knowledge cultures. Then we have one on uh, publics and politics, looking at uh, the Royal Society, uh, public libraries, um, different conceptions of uh, what public libraries are for and where they come from and different notions of publicity and the relationship between open access and democratic participation. Uh, On the chapter in archives and preservations, we also uh, have a really nice piece looking at um, libraries, museums and archives as speculative knowledge infrastructure um, and uh, different sorts of practice in digital humanities, and as Martin already mentioned, Istvan Reb's piece on the sort of politics of archives and what they should and should not contain and the implications of that. Uh, and I won't go into Lorber's depth of the rating two because, uh, because of time, but we have one on infrastructures and platforms, uh, looking at some of the different digital dynamics and questions around uh, uh, what happens when these different sorts of arrangements are brought online and uh, different sorts of projects and global communities um, 
which is looking at learned societies, uh, different sorts of research communities, uh, and and so on. Yeah, very good. Um, uh, unless, Martin, you wanted to add some sort of nuance to that. Um... I, there was just one thing I wanted to add, which was that, um, as Jonathan mentioned, the structure actually changed relatively late into the book's editing process as a result of the peer review feedback that we got. Um, I think the main feedback we had on the, the first draft of this book was that we hadn't done enough to uh, center the voices from, from the usual periphery. Actually, what we needed was to think more about the ways in which we could uh, bring voices to this conversation and put them up front. So actually, um, Thomas's chapter was not initially first, and, and that was an oversight on our part. I think the new structure works really well under thematic headings rather than chronological headings and helps us to disrupt the ideas of uh, linear history that have fed in so far into how we think about these things. So I, although I've been very critical of peer review elsewhere, actually the peer review process on this book turned out to give us uh, perhaps a quite different volume to the one that was originally intended, but one that I think was more powerful as a result. I completely agree. And just to, to add to that one final thing, which is I love uh, this notion of uh, the thick presence that Donna Haraway uses um, to kind of challenge this linear notion of the past, the present, the future, which was actually the previous structure of the book. And instead to look at how uh, futures and pasts are kind of operative in the present in our various arrangements. Um, so I think this is a kind of much, um, we ended up with a kind of, different specification of the stakes uh, through this structure of the book. Yeah, and that, that view of time really does come out uh, to readers. Uh, it came out to me for certain um, that, you know, there's so much going on right now. You know, all of the implications of the, um, of the past we're living in and the potentials for futures are the results of our actions. And it, it's just made time after time, chapter for chapter, so real. For the reader, and, and I would say that that very much succeeded, and 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 it's funny, Martin, that you point out that you know Thomas uh, have a Maboa Nagudu's um, chapter there on the Pharmacon that it hadn't originally been up front. Uh, its its effect is really, yeah, it has an impact on the reader. I mean, here we have very early on in the in the book, um, you know, we start with colonial influences, and then we have Africa. And then we have, it hasn't been what we thought it was there. And then we have uh, a, uh, a quote, which is just uh, phenomenal, uh, learning to unlearn in order to relearn, being one of the sort of guiding principles of what uh, Nagudu has to say in his chapter. Uh, really phenomenal stuff. And as you say, Martin, the effect is truly to resituate the reader, get the reader rethinking what's going on here. I mean, I hope so. I, the, the interesting thing about Thomas's chapter is that um, the, the essential argument is that there is a kind of, how can I say this word? Epistemicide um, at work in, in some of the ways that open practices works. And what we usually think of as an openness um, when you're doing work um, on, on former colonial nations can become something that looks like appropriation uh, of of those cultures and republishing them for the benefit of, say, the global north, although that term is itself um, problematic. 
So, so what I really like about this chapter is the way that it asks us to rethink you know, the ethics of open access and how it works. Um, on the other hand, you know, there, there I do have some disputes um, with, with Thomas about some aspects of this chapter, most notably that I feel this chapter sometimes doesn't um, pay enough attention to the fact that what we have at the moment might actually be worse, um, might contain these same colonial elements uh, even without open access. So the, the, the dialogue I had with Thomas in developing this chapter was quite extensive and it was it mostly centered around those, those kind of devil's advocate type propositions where I'd say, well, but isn't, you know, you're describing these as problems that should be ascribed to open access. Is that really the case or is this actually just a problem of the global north dominance in this, on the communications space, whether it's open or closed? And I think what we managed to, to hone the, the argument down to was the aspects of open practice specifically that are problematic in this context. Um, but it really, a lot of the chapters did develop in that kind of dialogical way. Um, I don't want to take more credit than is due, but there was quite a lot of hands-on editing and that kind of conversation that I hope helped authors um, in many cases to shape their arguments and to, to benefit from me pestering them and pro- provoking them, really. <laughs> If I might just jump in there on that, because uh, you as the editor would have the insight into this, the, one of the points that really struck me in, in Thomas's chapter was about this idea of local criteria for the research assess- assessment and evaluation. So he was talking about you know publishing according to the needs of a target audience and not to the prestigious journals of, as you say, the global north. And that then you know producing a research which can be revalued in a sense. And to me, what what struck me about that was, isn't this actually classic rhetoric? I mean, rhetoric is the first step of to whom, right? For whom? And it seems like some of our science, some of our research must be by the current system distorted if that question isn't being answered correctly. Right. And I think the problem with lots of discourses of openness is that they assume that the, the for whom question is addressed by the fact that everybody can read the scholarship. And so they feel that that fundamental premise of of rhetoric is no longer one that needs addressing. But I think that this chapter in particular gives a strong cause to question that assumption um, and to to worry about the fact that local communities are not well served. I mean, one of the other chapters, I think it's um, Roe, Inafuku, and all, and Jabinski, points out that in, in top, in quotation marks, economics journals, only 5% of papers are about nations other than the United States or America. So, you know, what, what does it really mean to have open open access to scholarly communications if you still have those kinds of exclusionary boundaries where the subject of discussion, the for whom, in that sense, is really very narrowly limited uh, to, to the global north? Um, Jonathan, did you did you want to say something on that? Yeah, I guess um, I really uh, I'm really glad that you sort of noticed and appreciated uh, the decision to put that first. And I guess you know going going back to your discussion of rhetoric, Daniel, um, you know you have that kind of classic notion of beginning in media res or in the middle of things. Um, a lot of the things that you might reach to when you talk about open access, and many of the chapters indeed do this. They they talk about the same sorts of familiar context right so the um the different agreements like the uh, budapest open access um 
uh, initiative, right? Uh, whereas I, I thought one, one thing that was really refreshing is um, if you uh, re-specify uh, what open access is and what it means from the point of view of um, African countries, which Thomas does such a good job at kind of reanimating in that first chapter, the whole situation, the whole state, the whole sort of set of stakes looks completely different. And um, the chapter finishes with this kind of set of ideas on how to recompose the arrangements around global South actors, communities, interests and issues. Um, and of course, we, we, we see a lot of those stakes surfacing now in um, some of the stark differences between the global north and the global south around IP, patents, generic drugs, uh, copyrights and, uh, and other things. But I think another um, thing that uh, that chapter does which um, really works, I thought really uh, works in terms of changing the way that you think about what open access is, is it sort of tries to avoid this kind of diffusion model, which is very common, thinking of the middle uh, being, uh, you know, sort of the global north and some of these familiar um, sorts of histories about open access and then diffusing out to the periphery and instead um, uh, sort of it, Sort of pays attention to practices, infrastructures, and innovations in the global south, which kind of challenge that sort of diffusion model, and also, um, I guess, in effect, challenge um, the fact that uh, you know coloniality is not just something that happens in the past, something which is kind of continuously reproduced in the present, and there's a kind of way of noticing the difference of capacities of scholarly communication infrastructures to continue to extract and to dominate and to exclude. Um, now, not just um, in the past. Yeah, no, that also does come out. Uh, to, to, to move, uh, we don't need to sequentially go through uh, the book for sure, but uh, the next chapter also just attracted so much of my attention. Um, so you followed a POW uh, chapter with a with a bang chapter, the scholarly communications and uh, social uh, justice, uh, Charlotte Rowe, Harrison Nefuku, and Emily uh, Drabinsky. If I might, uh, I think this really gives us the chapter, just uh, three or four sentences at, from the moving close that, of the chapter. And ethically, I'm, I'm, I'm counting, uh, I'm, 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 I'm quoting now, an ethical scholarly communications practice would also engage in fights for the wages and working conditions of all laborers along the production chain, from the ivory tower intellectual typing on their computer in Cambridge to the factory worker in China, whose labor produced that computer in the first place. An ethical scholarly communications practice would consider both the Nigerian scholar who is recognized throughout Africa, as well as the environmental and labor practices around the metals that create our publishing tools. Scholarly communications is a series of material practices that could be constructed otherwise, rooted in equity and justice, rather than colonialization and dominance. Now, this was sort of the the climax to a chapter that just moved me in so many different ways, and and and, and here again we have that concreteness of the book coming out to us. So, so I suppose for me the key term that's used there is materiality, and and you know it's it's a very common move in infrastructural studies to point out the materiality of the digital. Um, you know, there's there's nothing new there, but what I, what I think is interesting is the way that this asks us to counter actually some of the narratives of economic efficiency that have gone along with scholarly communications and open access. So 
one of the things that's always bugged me about open access is the, the dualistic demand for open access to scholarship while also reducing the amount we pay to um, you know, very big publishers like Elsevier usually, and that's, that's what provokes the outrage. And the challenge for me is that we see often lots of studies coming out at the moment about what, what is the actual cost of producing a scholarly article? You know, what should the cost be for open access, for instance? But what, what I often don't see in that kind of analysis that focuses on costs and price and so on and transparency of those is this kind of ethical questioning of, well, how did you get that price to be so low? How is it that you managed to get your typesetting down to 50 pounds, 50 UK pounds or, or whatever? Um, did you think about the wage conditions of the people who work at the typesetters with whom you're working there? Um, the, other, the other frequent joke I bring out when I'm talking about this stuff is um, you know, how many um, post-colonial studies scholars know that their journal is typeset on the Indian subcontinent at a subpar rate of remuneration? You know, these are... These are the chain of labor. This is the chain of labor that sits underneath what we produce in the academy and what makes our existence possible. And just as you've seen calls for uh, ancient institutions to recognize, say, their, their, their foundedness in the slave trade or so on, or economic benefit from that, the question we need to ask in the present, and that I think Rowett Isle's chapter gestures towards is, the extent to which we still benefit from global inequality and that if we're just pursuing cost reductions at, at all cost, um, we overlook the ethics of that chain of infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess uh, another um, passage that really uh, struck me from that chapter was on page 47, this is a contrast between um, research and writing being dominated by white men from the global north and production being a kind of race at the bottom undertaken by the cheapest, most disposable workers. And this mirrors um, a move which is often um, uh, kind of seen as important in infrastructure studies, which uh, Susan Lee Starr and Jeff Bowcroft described as sort of infrastructural inversion. Um, I guess just to take another analogy that they were influenced by, if you look at um, work on the sociology of art, um, rather than looking at the artwork, you look at everything around that artwork, which is required for it to be seen and appreciated as an artwork. You look at kind of supply chains involved in producing um, prints and canvas. You look, you look at kind of gallery workers, you look at sort of ticket sales and so on. And I guess we were keen to try and do a similar thing with this book to kind of perform a sort of inversion around uh, scholarly communication, open access, and resituate it and reworld it uh, in relation to all sorts of other issues, communities, uh, forms of labour and infrastructures and concerns. Well, uh, I did say that we don't need to use sequence, but I, I just see also so much sequence building in the chapters, because when I look at the next uh, chapter with social justice and inclusivity, um, Reggie Raju, Jill Klassen, Namla uh, Madini and Tamsin Suleiman. Um, there we get much of uh, what both of you are, are just uh, referring to now, this idea that um, you can say things are open, but that very often is working on the assumption that all other influences are equal. 
And here, the example of Africa is brought up, that there's poor access to internet, that there's blackouts, that there's poor IT infrastructure, that there's dire lack of skills, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, the, the, the sort of euphoria of the early 2000s, where many of these manifestos come from, that you know, got the open access movement heading in all directions, weren't seeing, looking in all directions, if you like. Yeah, and it, it's it's apt actually today to to turn to Reggie Jill um, at Al's chapter here, as there's been a huge fire at their library, which has destroyed large parts of the building today. So um, thoughts with them on that. Um, I guess this chap. What I like about this chapter actually is its groundedness in a set of material practices um, on the ground that they're working on. Um, they are the types of people of very much of my mind here who are not content just to sit by and um, describe, you know, what we could do, but actually, you know, they're working about social justice and inclusivity through library publishing and detailing the titles that they have going in their network um, of, of institutions on the African continent. So for me, this was a, a good chapter to follow some of those more theoretical openings with people who really have actually begun to change things and to think through, I think they're using the principle of Ubuntu um, in, in that chapter to, to get to a more egalitarian model of scholarly communications. And I guess just to follow on from that, um, you know, a lot of early work on open access dis discussed kind of removing um, barriers and restrictions. And you just mentioned, Daniel, um, all sorts of issues and problems around say, connectivity and uh, the provision of different sorts of uh, infrastructures and so on. But one of the things that I also really like about this chapter um, is it also emphasizes um, forms of expertise and uh, community and, um, you know, forms of knowledge production, which could be built upon and empowered and foregrounded in order to do scholarly communication differently. Um, so it's not just emphasizing um, the lack of different sorts of capacities or materials or systems. It's also looking at how um, you, wherever you look, there are always forms of expertise which are excluded but nevertheless present. Well, if I needed any more proof that the chapters actually have a flow to them, then <laughs> here it is. <laughs> the next chapter is exactly about what Jonathan is speaking uh, about, in my opinion, um, this epistemic injustice. So uh, just the idea that, uh, and here here we have the definition from, from the chapter itself, that you know somebody's knowledge or capacity as a knower can be devalued. So this devaluation of people themselves, but also entire systems of knowledge or ways of thinking is indeed what's going on. I mean, if we see in the North, the global North, to use the term for lack of a better, uh, that, right, there's lack of connectivity in, in um, Africa. That's what they need. That's what's missing. We're missing what they have. And there are things that are left out of science because of that. And this chapter really powerfully closes, I feel, with a set of recommendations um, from which we can learn. And I'd just like to briefly summarize because I think they're important. And one of the first of those is to uh, recognize uh, that there are these global inequalities. And for those who are in positions of, of privilege and power, to try to have some kind of responsible agency 
which is what Jose Medina calls it. Um, and that this exercise of uh, introspection is an important thing for us to undertake in, in thinking about our practices. I mean, they also note that we need to challenge um, technical standards uh, and norms and infrastructures that might perpetuate epistemic injustice. And surely part of that has to be the global prestige network of journals and their hierarchical tiering and their geographical situation in the global north. Um, they also, though, I think, draw our attention to the fact that we need to learn from infrastructures that have done this right in the first place, which I think connects to the later chapter we have on Cielo, um, often derided by those in professional publication um, cultures in the global north. Um, Jeffrey Beale once referred to Cielo as a publication favela. Yet I think Cielo has solved many of the problems of scholarly communications with which we're grappling in, in the UK, for instance, at the moment. And we just seem unwilling to, to look at what they've done and to adopt that practice of um, radical decentralization, but with centralized infrastructural provision. Um, but finally, I, th I think interestingly for this chapter, they they recommend that we imagine openness as a radical practice that aspires to liberation and freedom from structural oppression. And that for me is really important because it's the reason that I got interested in all this was because I thought everything is so wrong in the way we publish. We need to fix this. I came to it with um, ethically pure views on why I thought this would be better for everyone in the world. Since that time, you know, cynicism has set in. I've seen lots of critiques of open access. I see all the negative, you know, is it part of neoliberal practices? How does it sit with, with that side of the academy? And those are all valid critiques. But on the other hand, there is an ethics at the core of open access. And I think reclaiming that as the thing to which we are striving, that's what would make this a better system of scholarly communications, to reinscribe that ethics a radical practice that aspires to liberation and freedom from structural oppression. I completely agree. And I, I think there's so much in this chapter that one could take and bring into, you know, uh, practice and policy documents and advocacy materials for people who are keen to um, engage with open access and what it means for their work and for their institution. Um, and just to add a couple of uh, quotes to what Martin has just highlighted, the sort of ending note on um, uh, collaborative imaginaries for more just and equitable knowledge infrastructures, I think is a lovely phrase, and also ecologies of knowledge that nurture curiosity, appreciation, and respect for diverse ways of knowing uh, the world. And I guess, you know, it really does highlight the stakes uh, when they talk about uh, participatory methodologies such that rural farmers and academic researchers can work together on equitable terms to inform the design of climate change adaptation strategies, right? So it's really kind of uh, challenging the notion that this is just about uh, people who are professional researchers within universities publishing things which others are able to access, and it really shifts um, uh, towards the co-production of knowledge and truly participatory knowledge infrastructures. And I and and this this brings me also to one of the points of of the book overall. And we're going to have to unfortunately make enormous jumps and and uh, perhaps uh, move on towards uh, much later parts in the book, uh, unfortunately. 
um, but all the more reason for the listeners to go out and, and read for themselves. But one of the things that comes up in the introduction is the idea that this is from a collaboration, a uh, sort of interdisciplinary work of uh, social science and humanities. And the natural sciences themselves aren't, let's say, directly represented, although practically everything that's being said here is just as well uh, applicable to them. I see it even in this chapter when we talk about challenging the standards or the norms, um, right? The the uh, sort of prestige journals that are, let's say, the, the norm for natural sciences, right? Anglophone culture is what dominates in the natural sciences. And there's this wonderful uh, from nature, one of these particular journals, of course, but um, wonderful podcast series that's just gone through diversity in science. And the point that's made so brilliantly there in a materials practice way, I would say, is that um, a person's sexual orientation, a person's uh, racial background or social background, um, whether or not they've had mental health issues or not, all of these things make them different and therefore for the entire community, better scientists. And I'm talking biology, chemistry, and so on, where it's not the first place that people's minds fly to when they think, right, we need diversity, we need various perspectives. Apparently, right, you just have the scientific method and you run it through. It's not that way, though. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, a lot of discourse around diversity has actually been about reinscribing a subjectivity into science and recognizing that. A lot of problem with... Um, thinking about the scientific method as far as such a thing exists has been about uh, intersubjective verification leading to the erasure of subjectivity. Yet we all know that that is a myth and is not <laughs> going to tell the whole story and that people's backgrounds will lead them, say, to come up with different questions, um, different hypotheses, different suppositions for experimental setups. Um, so I think that, you know, that identity aspect needs to be thought about when we're constructing scientific research teams. But I mean, just to back away from that a little and go back to the, where you started on that question, Daniel. Um, yeah, this is a, this is a humanistic and social scientific book in many ways. Um, most of the paradigms being described might apply to natural sciences as much as the humanities, but you know, perhaps that is a weakness of the text that we didn't get some, more natural scientists to come in. I suppose that, you know, we do have platforms that publish natural science in there. Cielo is, is prominent there. There's also the linked open data uh, cloud stuff that um, oh, I can't remember which author it was who gave, gave us that chapter. Um, but a, a lot of this has been about thinking about disciplinary convergences as much as differences, I think. So it, it's good for once to see I wanted I wanted to see, and that's why we put this together, a book where humanists are thinking about open practice and what it might mean for, say, the dissemination of history, the dissemination of literary criticism and so on, fields that often play second fiddle to the natural sciences in discourses of open because they don't save anyone's lives directly. I do often say in that context, well, you know, the medical sciences might... Uh, be able to keep me alive but perhaps the humanities disciplines give me a reason to wish to be so um so yeah that that was part of the disciplinary aim jonathan did you want to come in on that yeah i guess uh, it's a really uh, it's a really interesting reminder because we did start martin with the idea of 
uh, focusing on perspectives from the humanities and from social research in contrast to um, the sort of dominant approach in policy and advocacy, which often um, took examples and cases from the natural sciences as a starting point and looked at how they could be extended into other fields. So I think it was a sort of decision very early on to focus um, on foregrounding um, insights and perspectives from the humanities and social sciences, and, and, and not just to do that as a form of extending the logic of open access to um, you know, scholarly material from the humanities and social sciences, but also to bring you know, all of these uh, rich perspectives from history, from science technology studies, from media studies, from um, uh, decolonial and post-colonial perspectives on um, these systems to bear on uh, contemporary scholarly communication in the digital uh, in the digital age, and I guess um, we also draw extensively on uh, social and cultural research on science and technology. Um, and just to mention one thing, there is this kind of uh, widely discredited notion of the deficit model, which suggests that the purpose of you know um, the uh, science communication is to address ignorant publics um, who uh, should be supplied with more information or facts, right? And you see this uh, model uh, coming up again and again in relation to things like uh, misinformation and disinformation and fact-checking, the idea that uh, we, uh, it's the job of information professionals of various kinds to, to supply information to the ignorant. Uh, whereas I think one thing that we really tried to emphasize was how participatory models of scholarly communication might also affirm expertise outside the academy and draw on a wider range of different sorts of experiences um, rather than just thinking of how to more efficiently convey published content from professional researchers to a wider variety of audiences. Um, great. I know our time is running down, um, but I, I do want in the middle of the book to hit on the chapter on peer review. Um, David Pontil and Didier Tony's uh, chapter there, uh, Readers and the Making of Scholarly Knowledge, because this is also a fascinating topic that I uh, was uh, just found myself reflecting on days afterwards. Um, one, just one almost random point that comes out there is where they talk about the two complementary horizons of reading that are active in citation, this all-important activity nowadays. Um, if we think of the natural sciences, I mean, it is really the only important uh, factor, and it certainly is influential in, in the social sciences, humanities as well. And uh, the two complementary horizons that are talked about there is science as a system for accumulating knowledge, so via this referencing operation, but also and this is what I found interesting, and this is sort of a different view of knowledge, research as discussion of this same knowledge through criticism and commentary. So you have, on the one hand, sort of a record kept, but on the other hand, a conversation that moves. So these two views of knowledge that are being made possible through citation. Yeah, and I think they, they distinguish this with reference and citation being the two uh, sides of the coin they're looking at. And it's, it's complicated even further when we realise that various aspects of those practices are brought into assessment metrics and methodologies and used, the citing activity becomes something that uh, is used to make quantitative judgments 
that are divorced from the qualitative acts of reading and contextualization. And you know, there are some really interesting startups like I think it's called Site S C I T E that are, that attempt now using machine learning techniques to ascribe uh, sentiment to the way in which a citation appears, and to attempt to contextualize the criticism or agreement or what kind of engagement is going on. But it's it's interesting the history that uh, that these two authors managed to chart of how. The, the idea of referencing kind of flattened these two activities into one as a historical model of how we we uh, make reference to other scholarship when actually the practices below the surface are quite different. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I do uh, feel uh, the time breathing down my neck, unfortunately, and I want uh, to just jump into the last two parts and uh, in a overview sort of way also maybe throw out just a few ideas th- things that really struck me for example uh, both of in, in in the infrastructures and uh, platformization uh, this this particular part also includes both of your contributions um so i would i would love to hear what you have to say about your own contributions just two ideas that struck me as well uh, outside of your contributions were um the platformization of open by phoenix andrews and in in that chapter we have um so many fantastic ideas about uh, what platformization is, what cooperative values are, what ethics are. And another is, um, oh, it is indeed, sorry, now I see, uh, Martin, uh, your, your chapter on um, reading uh, scholarship uh, digitally. And there, what I what I found was when I think, uh, I, I spend a lot of time with natural scientists, my listeners will know, because I, I run a writing program here at the university and work primarily in the natural sciences. And what I found is that you have these people who think very evidence-based, numbers-based, and yet they seem to allow themselves to be duped by you know, the impact factors, as if that one number could capture the entire value of the research. Um, that, that is where they stop their rigorous training of you know, checking every single corner of what it is that is true or not true. Um, but those are just two thoughts. Um, I give I give the last two parts though to you for your own thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, this, the same could be said about academics and publishing contracts, right? Academics are absolute specialists in reading everything in thorough detail, just until the moment they're presented with a contract to sign for their latest publication. At which point, all critical faculties seem to go out the window. So I, I think you can say the same about different forms of research metrics, although I'm, I'm very pleased actually to see organizations like the Wellcome Trust pushing DORA and attempting to make us think critically about the metrics we use because they do have real world consequences on people's mental health um, and some prominent cases of, of bullying in institutions, particularly in the UK at the moment. With respect to my, my chapter, I, I won't say too much about it other than that I think I've tried to focus on the fact that openness of texts gives us some possibilities of thinking at broader scales than has been possible before when we study the secondary scholarly literature. Um, I do a bit more on this in my most recent book, Reading Peer Review, where we employed some computational methods to look at um, peer reviews at scale, reading several hundred thousand peer review reports and trying to classify them. But I guess, on the other hand, I'm also a little wary around some of this. I think that a lot of the... um, AI training is oversold and that our text classification models still struggle with some quite basic tasks 
um, unless you have a very good underlying data set to, for, the, for the training um, and validation processes. So the, my chapter is a, a utopian hope for what might be possible, even while I feel that in the present moment, lots of that uh, falls down on the practicalities. Um, Jonathan. Yeah, I I, um, I love that uh, sort of notion. And it's, it's great to be reminded that that was actually one of the things that we set out to do uh, when we were kind of first putting together this book. It's almost challenging this sharp distinction between um you know, what researchers do when they're uh, writing articles and when they're uh, publishing, uh, which is, you know, this kind of forensic attentiveness to the material of their research. And what could sometimes almost be a sort of disregard from questions around scholarly communication and um, the way in which their work is given shape and form through these infrastructures and practices of scholarly communication. And, yeah, I guess uh, the... One of the aims of this section, uh, section five, was to explore how infrastructures are not just neutral means, but also substantively play a role in shaping scholarly communication, including what is said and what is sayable, who and what is heard. Um, and with my own chapter, I just wanted to do something very simple, which is to look at exper uh, experiments um, around infrastructure and infrastructural experiments um, as an interesting area. Uh, where um, these questions could be explored, including around who has access, what counts as research, um, what matters and how relations are configured. And I do that by looking at a number of different infrastructural projects from the open access button um, to uh, various journals, which aim to accredit uh, software and data and other things, as well as, um, you know, these different sorts of experiments around uh, trying to understand the story of research and impact story profiles and uh, various other things. And I guess uh, our hope with the book is that in addition to thinking of, you know, library policies and university policies and national policies around um, how research is made open, it might also inform experiments in this area with different sorts of infrastructures which do scholarly communication in different ways. Well, Martin, uh, Jonathan, you've been very generous with your time. I do have one last question, and it, and it gets back to the central core issue of ethics, which both of you have referred to. And I suppose I'm just going to leave it as a bit of a, um, a diffuse question. So feel free to answer any way that you like. Um, it's, it's sometimes, if you step back, hard to imagine that knowledge is not open. I mean, whether you think of that technically, financially, culturally, epistemically, however you think of it, uh, because how could you close knowledge, if you like? It made me think of uh, an interview that I'd heard of uh, Jonas Salk in the 1950s, who uh, was one of the first to um, come up with the uh, polio vaccine. He was asked whether or not he would put a patent on that. And his response was to be, <laughs> I mean, flabbergasted why the question would even come. And he said, well, you might as well just put a patent on the sun. And to me, that sort of encapsulates this idea that what we know is ours, isn't it? So I guess for me, I'm afraid that, you know, I don't have huge optimism around this topic. Um, when the current government of the United Kingdom can tell us that we got the coronavirus vaccine because of greed and capitalism, um, 
my hope for the human race sinks uh, to the bottom of my stomach from my heart. You know, it's there is a, a whole set of mentality out there around knowledge, ownership, proprietorization of knowledge that really is just so at odds with the way that I think about the world that it's almost impossible for there to be a meeting of minds on this. The strange thing is that it is those very same governments who are instigating policies around open access and open sharing of knowledge. You know, that's one of the things that's drawn suspicion of many scholars towards open access mandates is the fact that they're commonly implemented by neoliberal centre-right to far-right governments. So it is a political minefield, but the, the question of you know, is shouldn't everything be open or you know, how, how could it not be is one I think that we ask from a position of, of common understanding on this podcast that is perhaps not as widely shared as we might like outside of these walls. That's a shame and we need to keep working on, on a mindset that does think in that way. But to do so, I think, will require resolving the sets of tensions that our contributors have brought out in this volume and confronting head-on those types of criticism with fixes to our open practices uh, that attempt to address those issues of coloniality, those issues of epistemology, of infrastructures and platforms, publics and politics, archives and preservations, and of global communities. Jonathan? Yeah, and I guess... um... Yeah, overall, what we sought to do with the book is, as well as inviting critical reflection and exploration from this kind of wide variety of disciplinary perspectives, as we mentioned right at the end, um, we're interested in exploring interventions and experimentation, which shapes um, how scholarly communication functions and what it does in the world. But I guess just to finish on a slightly more optimistic note, one of the, again, the kind of feminist um, science technology studies perspective is to kind of highlight um, what uh, science and technology often depend on, but which is uh, under acknowledged. Um, and I guess just taking a, a slightly more, again, sort of optimistic reading, um, rather than thinking of the commons as something which is not yet and uh, which is a kind of um, speculative aspiration, we can also take the view that so much of collective life, from language to culture to biological forms and the various forms of kind of collaboration and symbiosis upon which they depend, is actually the basis for some of these more exploitative and extractive uh, forms which we're problematizing in the book. Um, And noticing and attending to and caring for some of these arrangements uh, might also suggest ways in which scholarly communication could be done differently. And um, all of the different sorts of practices and arrangements which we can build on to making a more equitable um, scholarly communication system. Um, Yeah. All right. Yeah, well, thank you very much. That is Martin Paul Eve and Jonathan Gray and their edited volume, Reassembling Scholarly Communications, Histories, Infrastructures, and Global Politics of Open Access was published Open Access by MIT in 2020. You'll find the link below in this podcast. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Martin and Jonathan. Goodbye. Thanks so much. Bye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.